Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. I'm your host, Andrea McMillan. And if you are tuning in, this is the show where I have illuminating conversations with interesting people that inspire me because I believe we are more alike than we are different. And we each have something that we can share with another person that's valuable, that's meaningful, and most of all, that can connect us rather than divide us. Um, and also we're going through some challenging times some unprecedented times. And so this is where I meet with experts, leaders, everyday people around us um, to get their insight, to learn about the profession and learn about the person uh, behind that profession as well. That's very important. Uh, in today's episode, we're talking to Aurora Police Chief Kristen Zeman. She was born and raised in the West of Aurora. She's rose her way through the ranks to become the first ever female police chief. Uh, and I'm excited to talk with her. We're going to talk all about her growing up. We're going to talk about her career journey. We're going to talk about her leadership. We're going to talk about her thoughts on police reform and Black Lives Matter movement and how she handles law and order from her position. Thank you for tuning in. And I can't wait uh, to talk with her next. Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Today, we have Aurora's very own police chief, Kristen Zeman. She's born and raised on the west side of Aurora, graduate of West Aurora High School. She started as police cadet um, at the Aurora Police Department and worked her way up to be the first female police chief of Aurora. So thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. I know you've been busy. We've tried to connect a few times and it's not like you were, you were playing ball. <laughs> it's not like you were at the spot. You were busy working, trying to maintain law and order and safety. And we appreciate that. Thank you for being a guest. Thank, oh, you. thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. What's been going on in your world <laughs> lately? How has life been for Chief Zeman? Gosh, how much time do we have? Uh, well, so I feel like it's funny because we were just talking about this in our, our morning staff meeting. And, you know, someone made the comment that we haven't had a chance to take a breath because in 2019, we had a mass shooting on February 15th. And that year is a complete blur for me because we were, of course, mourning the death of five of our citizens that were killed that day, five of our police officers that were shot. And then, you know, they didn't come back right away. So we were immersed in the aftermath of that mass shooting. So 2019 just sort of came and, and went. And then 2020 got here. And like everyone, we thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be such a great year. You know, we're going to try and put this behind us and move forward as much as we possibly can and heal. And then COVID hit. And so then, you know, trying to police 
in an environment that we have never policed in before. So uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I was making it up as I went along. You know, it was like, what is the police officer's role? What is our first responders role in COVID? And how do we handle a pandemic, something that we've never experienced before? So when everyone else had to stay home, the essential workers, the healthcare first responders were all out there. So my team in this police department stepped up, started working 12-hour shifts, started putting themselves in harm's way to be out there because 911 calls don't stop in the middle of a pandemic, as it turns out. And so there's that. And then just as we start to feel like we're getting through the pandemic, well, then the murder of George Floyd then sends, of course, every city in the nation into turmoil. So that's a really long answer to say that I feel like since February 15th, 2019, I have not taken a breath. And we're still not done. The, the dust has not settled, I don't believe at all. We still have a lot of work to do. So, so that's what I've been up to. What do you do? How do you function in high leadership when there is no precedence? There is no rule book or code that you can just quickly look up. How do you think quickly and then still lead proficiently? So I think part of it, and I'll go back to the mass shooting, is that there were moments right after the mass shooting where I felt as though I was probably several months behind everyone else because I couldn't break down. I couldn't fall apart because I had to keep everything together. I had to make sure that everything was going to be okay. And so then when finally we got this moment where, okay, those we lost had been laid to rest and the police officers we knew were going to pull through. So it was like this moment, you know, where everybody else could take a collective sigh. I felt like I just couldn't yet. And so my breakdown came much later than everyone else's. I feel like I'm on this like emotional wave. And so then I finally had this moment of like, okay, I just have to break down and pick up the pieces. And, and that's what it's been like, honestly, since then is this roller coaster of emotions. COVID was a lot different because I, I mean, I got COVID. So my right out of the gate, myself and the mayor and my deputy chief were down. So I'm trying to lead a department like from my bed with seven days I haven't washed my hair, you know, trying to get on Zoom calls. And it was weird, but I found out, you know, that the work could still be done from behind the scenes. And so that was a weird way. And when I say I was making it up as I went along, I'm not even kidding. It was like, what do we do now? Okay, I'm not sure. How do we enforce masks? Well, we can, we can't. No, we can't. It was just coping. But, you know, I think for for uh, a leader, and you know, some might argue that a leader can never show emotion or never say that they're scared. But for me, I told my team, especially in the middle of COVID, I said, you guys, I don't know what this is supposed to look like. I'm not sure what we're supposed to be doing, but we're going to have to figure it out together. So for me, it's a lot of bending, but not breaking. It's just riding that emotional roller coaster and being completely vulnerable in the process and telling people, I'm not quite sure how to handle this, but as a team, we're going to figure it out together. Mm -hmm. And you are still navigating the aftermath. Now there's a lot of tension with police. There's a lot of community frustration. Yeah. How are you dealing with that aspect? What have you taken away from everything so far? Right at the onset of the death of George Floyd, if you think about it, how things were in Aurora at that time, again, coming off the mass shooting, we weren't making headlines. Our police officers are well revered. We try to do the right thing. We make mistakes, but we hold our officers accountable. So if you would have asked me before that, I would have said, gosh, we're doing great. You know, we're a progressive agency and we are inclusive and engaging and our community feels it. Take yourself back to 2019. Oh, you know, 
it was enveloped. We were yeah. just like, it, it, I we had the blue felt. lights outside. Oh gosh, yes. Yes. So to go from being loved to being hated in a flip of a switch, I'm not going to lie, was very, very painful because there was this part of me that said, whoa, 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 whoa wait, hold on. We didn't do anything. This I'm the Aurora, good guy. Yes, exactly. We, this wasn't Aurora. This didn't happen in Aurora. And there's my, you know, naivete to say, well, it didn't happen in Aurora. So it must not be happening or people must not be hurting. It was truly a naive thing to say and to think. And so then having suddenly everyone, the anger that rose up and in the moment, it was really hard because I understood that I'm the face of this organization. So that anger was really focused on me and our department. And it took me a minute to stop going, guys, that's not fair. We didn't do anything to hold on. Okay, you know what? I am part of this institution that people have come to not trust because of the actions of police officers from across the nation who have committed these transgressions. So I had to get to a point of acceptance to say that I represent this institution and I had to put down my defense mechanism and not, you know, do that. This isn't fair to, okay, how are we going to be better? How are we going to ensure that we're still doing the right thing, still holding our police officers accountable and getting better in the process? Because there's a lot that we can do to improve upon. And building trust is one of those things that we need to continually do. You can't just stop doing that. So the change initiative, which was set forth by the mayor's office, we were right on board, but I stood up in front of everyone who came to those sessions and said how defensive I was in the beginning. But it, it was an opportunity for us to listen to our community and to hear from their vantage point with a new set of eyes. I subscribe to the notion that we need to seek first to understand and then be understood. And so that was a check for me that I needed to look at our police department through the eyes of of others, those who don't trust us. It's been a learning experience for me and I think for the community as well. And how have other police officers responded? Do they agree with that viewpoint of listening first, seeking to understand? Has similar eyes been opened in that way? Yeah, I think so. And I do speak for them when I share my frustration of, wait, what did we do wrong? And that was what I heard from a lot of officers. I heard them say, but wait, I was there, you know, trying to help clean up that community. I've been there. I know that community. I know this neighborhood. And and I don't understand why, you know, they're turning against Guess. us. Um, yeah. And so it's been one of those struggles where we have had to get to a place of trying to understand the opposition and why people feel the way they do about policing. And I know that there are people who believe they have been harmed in this community. And especially because it's hard to shake a reputation. And I know that in talking to a lot of the people from these change initiative in these sessions is that there are a lot of people who were harmed in the 90s. And that was high crime in Aurora in the 90s. And they would tell me a story about what a police officer did to them, you know, and how they mistreated them. And I'm like, well, when did that happen? Well, it was like in 1990. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. So I, so I feel like we've made progress, but those, those harms are still very much there. You know, those cuts have not healed. Yeah. And so to answer your question, I think I can speak for officers to say that they were frustrated when that light switch flipped, but I know that they also understand the pain that is out there. 
So the message that I have for our officers is now is an opportunity for us to build trust even more. Now we have to be even better because we have to earn it. And every contact that we have on the street is an opportunity to build back trust. What kind of de-escalation tactics are used to get to the point where we can listen versus on the spot things get escalated to be able to calm situations down and allow for those opportunities in the heat of the moment, right? Because police officers aren't called for knocking on the door to sell Girl Scout cookies. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Yes. So to answer your question, and it's part of the reason I think that we were frustrated as well, is we've been building de-escalation training into our police department for as long as I can remember. I've been here almost 27 years, and I will hold our training up against any police departments in this state and probably across the nation. We have six mandatory trainings per year. (laughs) Exactly. And I give all the credit to our training division. So what they have done is they take these scenarios where we see the headlines of officers who have made mistakes. Laquan McDonald is a great example in Chicago. And in 2016, they built that same scenario into a training. And you're basically reenacting a lot of these incidents. And we try to do that in a controlled environment so officers can make mistakes um, in a safe and controlled environment. And then we after action them. But in every single scenario, we build in de-escalation. And our training division will stop a scenario and say, stop. Why did you not de-escalate? Why did you continue to do that when that subject was handcuffed? Why did you do this? And then they run through it again until they get it perfect. And so I believe firmly that you play like you practice. And so we've built that in. We also built in the duty to intercede. So all of these police departments that are starting to do these things now as a result of the death of George Floyd, I am so proud to say that we've been doing them for years. And duty to intercede has been built into our training in the same way that our scenario-based de-escalation is. We even have a scenario that our training officers put on where you have two people who are in a police uniform and they're role players and the two cops walk in onto the scene and they see these other cops beating someone up. And so they're measured by what they do in that moment. And of course, what they're supposed to do is go physically grab them. And on top of that, to your point, sometimes it doesn't even have to be you know a physical de-escalation. Every single one of our police officers is trained in CIT, which is crisis intervention. And that de-escalation is built into that too. And that's verbal de-escalation. So if there's someone who is maybe having a mental health crisis, those same skills apply whether someone's actively physically resisting versus someone who is verbally resisting. You know, no, I won't put my hands behind my back or making threats. So our officers are trained to de-escalate those situations. And it's been built into our training. And we are building upon that because we recognize how crucial it is. Now, listening to the community and saying these things have happened, maybe they're not happening to the extent that they did, but they have happened. What's going to change going forward to mend that? So, as I said, we had a lot of these things already built into our policies. We had already banned chokeholds. We'd already had de-escalation. But what I have learned from this, and this has been my biggest learning lesson, my takeaway, and I heard it said best by uh, the Oak Park chief who said, uh, a department can be transparent but it doesn't necessarily mean they're visible. And so I have touted that we are a transparent organization. You know, we are a progressive organization. But then what does that mean? I mean, if anybody were to ask, you know, I would say, yeah, here, here's our policy. We already have that. But it doesn't mean we're visible. So what we've taken from this is that we are 
uh, posting our policy. We're posting our use of force policy, posting our training policies. Uh, we're also translating them to the Spanish language because we have a, a big uh, Latinx community and, you know, we hadn't thought about doing that before. And so that's something that is uh, visible and transparent. On top of that, we are raising the Civilian Review Board. And that is another level of transparency. Even though you could FOIA our police discipline, uh, people really didn't know that. And that's what I mean about being transparent and being visible is people, you know, I can say, no, well, you can do it all you want. We're transparent, just FOIA it. But that's not visibility. What is, what is FOIA? FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act. So by law, you can, you know, get information on police discipline. I've told everyone anywhere I go, you can get that information, but still no one really understood or knew that. So now with this civilian review board, now it's going to be even more visible and transparent because, you know, people will lay eyes on um, our citizens' complaints against police officers. That is being set up by, uh, through an ordinance. I'm in full favor of it. I say all the time, we have have to hold our officers accountable. And that means that we stand with them when they are right and we part with them when they are wrong. And discipline, I firmly uh, believe, means to teach. And so if we can teach and redirect and keep that officer from doing it again, that's our end in mind. So, so all of those things will be new as part of this change initiative that have come out of this. And I think it's going to be a good thing for all of us. I like that you mentioned discipline is to teach because that's not always the way that we look at discipline or our police officer's role of, of having an educator component to it. A lot of times we think of it as punishment um, and force and violence. Where did you get that philosophy? Is that something that's taught within the police code and conduct or is this just your own evolution of leadership? Yeah, I think it's probably more my evolution. It's not something written down anywhere. I think for me, just being a student of leadership, I think I will be forever a student. I don't think I will ever master leadership. I think that's somewhere on another plane. And I don't think that, you know, people reach that utopia, but I spend most of my adult life learning and reading about leadership. And I learned that early on in my career. And that's actually where the word discipline comes from. It's Latin, you know, and it means to teach. And it was so interesting as a parent as well. I thought about that is that it's not punitive. You know, you're not trying to, to hurt you, to harm you, to punish you. It's to teach you, to redirect, to mentor, coach, redirect. And that's what we need to be doing. Naturally, there are those egregious actions that have to rise to the level of something beyond just a, a mere redirection. And we've terminated officers in my tenure. So it just depends on what that act is. And for me, it's interesting because I believe that there are mistakes of the head and mistakes of the heart. Mistakes of the head are those kinds of, of policy violations where, you know, maybe get, someone gets into a car accident or violates a policy, but they don't, you know, it's not intentional. Mistakes of the heart are those willful and wanton things that you know that you should not be doing and you do it anyway. That to me is the difference, you know, in the severity of it. But for me, my philosophy has always been that we as police officers need to be held to a higher standard. I believe firmly that if we are entrusted with enforcing the laws, then we had better follow the laws. Well said. <laughs> what about going forward and taking the momentum that's been building? Because there has been a lot of positive changes, as you've just mentioned, both on the policy side and both on the community engagement side. How do you want to capitalize on this engagement and what can citizens do to help improve and help? So I think that there is a lot to be done, but what has to happen is that we have to show up. 
and we have to have hard conversations. And that's where these listening sessions will come into play. We're starting our first one on Thursday where the community can come in and just basically, you know, talk to us. We're listening. You know, sometimes I feel like I do too much talking and not enough listening. And so that's where we begin is by listening. And I mean, you know, really hearing what people have to say and not being defensive. And so I need to take that in and understand that people are in pain and some people have been mistreated by police officers. And so I have to hear that and I have to listen to that. And I think that we have to come to a place where we see each other as human beings. And that's been difficult for me at the onset of this, as I mentioned before, about being the face of policing, right? And, you know, like people are just angry at me. And I'm like, you don't even know me. You know, you've, yeah. you've never met, we've never had a conversation before. You don't know who I am. You don't know how I think, how I feel. You don't know my philosophies. And so it's just because we tend to paint people with a broad brush. And I think that it's hard to hate when we lean in to people. And so that's what I think needs to happen on both sides. And I've sat down with a lot of people in our community and I've had both very constructive conversations and I've had very destructive conversations. And one of the conversations that I had uh, with someone in our community said, you know, I don't care what you have to say. And I thought, okay, well, I mean, then we can't get to a place of understanding. Yeah. And so I knew at that point that sometimes there are people that you just cannot get to a middle ground with. There's no bridge to be built because, you know, they won't come with the supplies to help you build that bridge. And so that's been hard for me because I haven't really had to endure that in the almost now four years that I've been chief, almost five years. And so I, I think that that's the first step is really listening and doing less talking and more listening. And I do mean that on both sides too. So we can see each other as human beings. Let's talk about that role of police chief and how you're maintaining law and order and what that means in terms of governing the police department and your oversight. Can you talk about that governance and what happens when there's an issue? Are you the one that is making those ultimate decisions? Can you explain a little bit of that structure? Yeah, so I'm ultimately the the person who administers the discipline in our police department. And so there's a whole process. There's an Office of Professional Standards so anytime a complaint comes into the police department from a citizen, it goes to our Office of Professional Standards. It might even come in through our Human Relations Commission. There are other ways to file a complaint against a police officer. But this is an, also an interesting fact is that 90% of the complaints generated against police officers in our department, 90%, 9-0, are generated internally by a supervisor. So what that reveals, what that should reveal to you is that this police department, your police department, is a department that holds itself accountable, that we police ourselves. And so what that means is a supervisor will see a police officer doing something wrong and they will write them up. They will file a complaint. And that is the culture that we have created here. And so when you say, what is my role in it? My role is to create culture. You know, you can have policies and procedures all day. There's, you know, we have a thick, thick manual of our policies and procedures. And in those procedures, they say, thou shalt not commit excessive force. But every police department has that same policy in it. So if you allow it to happen and you don't hold your officers accountable, 
then, you know, they're just words. And so that's where culture comes in. And that's where mission and vision from the top of the organization. And, and I won't take credit for it because my predecessor started the Office of Professional Standards and started this professional police department. I've just been trying to continue that legacy and then add my own perspective to it. But my role, once it goes through the entire process, which goes through OPS, and then it goes to the bureau commander that is in the chain of command for that officer or civilian that the complaint is filed against, After that, it goes to the employee review board. So it's looked at by a jury of peers, two police officers, two sergeants, two lieutenants, two commanders, and they weigh in on it. And then it comes to me. That's by design. There are a lot of checks and balances through the process. So when I get the file, then I see the file in its entirety, and then I, it's my responsibility to administer the discipline. And so what's going to happen in this process is the civilian review board will come in before the file even comes to me as well. They'll get it about the same time from what I understand that the employee review board gets it. So now I'll have even more sets of eyes on it. And I like the fact that there are new sets of eyes. They're not just police officers that are looking at it. So there'll be civilians looking at it. So that's how the process works. And and the culture truly is what sets the tone in the police department. What last message do you want the community members who are listening to Mm -hmm. hold when they hear you? And we're talking about police reform. We're talking about, yes, this is happening but I'm on it. I'm working. I'm, I'm really trying. What do you want to leave with them? So I want them to know that not one of us amongst these ranks of the Aurora Police Department wants to have a bad cop. Not, not one of them. We all, we have a vested interest in our profession, you know, being held to a higher standard. So, you know, I think there's some misnomer that there's this blind loyalty that we ignore cops doing things wrong. And the truth of the matter is, is that when you tarnish this badge, you tarnish every single one of them. And 99.9% of the cops that work on this police force and truly in law enforcement in general are professional and don't want to have bad police officers in the ranks. Now, that is not to say that they aren't there. And so we have to do our part in trying to get rid of them and holding them accountable and getting them off the police force. And I heard a former commissioner, Chuck Ramsey, say, it's not enough to just try to get rid of the bad apples. You have to figure out you know, why this tree is producing the bad apples and you have to tend to the tree. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting. So that means that we have to bring in people that are worthy of this profession. And let's talk about that because you guys are recruiting new police officers now. What does it take? If somebody wants to come in and they want to be a police officer, what do they have to do? What are you looking for from people mm-hmm. who want to get into the force? So the interesting part about recruiting police, right, when we look at the evolution of a police department, the way it used to be is they recruited military. If you were in the military, you were making an awesome police officer. And that is absurd. Those are two entirely different job descriptions. And so I have the philosophy that our training division, our academy, we can teach you how to be a cop. And that means how to handcuff someone. We can teach you the laws. But what you need to come in with are the things that we can't teach you. You know, the level of integrity that you have, your problem-solving skills, how you write. Believe it or not, when people say, gosh, what's the most important thing? They're kind of taken aback when I said, this is the most important tool that we have, our ability to, to write because 
We have to write a report. You know, we Mm -hmm. have to tell a story and we have to regurgitate that story on paper in a police report. And then we have to regurgitate that story in a courtroom. It follows that and your reputation, you know, is about how you transcribe that incident that happened. But more importantly, it's about how you treat other people. So let me go back to that problem solving is that that's who I want. People who can come here, they can go out on the street and they can mitigate a situation because you mentioned it earlier when you said that nobody calls 911, you know, to come over and have tea. It's usually because something bad has happened in their life and they had to pick up the phone and call 911. And so you want someone who can show up on the scene and who can mitigate that situation through using compassion and empathy. And yes, that is important. I said the C word, compassion. I think that there are sometimes, you know, your old school cops that think that there's something weak about that. And that old school cop thinks like, I liken them to the mirrored sunglasses and attitude, you know, those kind of cops where, you know, the cops that actually are the most successful are the ones that can come on a scene and they can show empathy and compassion vulnerability. They can use their humor, their communication skills to mitigate a situation. That's who I'm looking for. Those who have that kind of skill. We have a a lot of people that have been recruited uh, by us and they don't have a law enforcement background. We're getting a lot of people with social work background. And those people are amazing because they know exactly how to problem solve coming in. And so that is my ideal candidate is someone who can come in and solve a problem. But I will say this, I'm getting away from that concept of guardian and warrior and that, you know, you have to have this warrior mentality because I believe words matter. And I believe we have to get rid of that, just that negative connotation of warriorship. So I will say that they need to be courageous guardians because it's not enough to just problem solve and talk to people. Our mass shooting will tell you that you also have to have people who are courageous that will run towards gunfire. And so if you have all of the other qualities, but you don't want to do that, then it's probably not the right profession for you. And that's why it takes a very special person to be a police officer, because you you do have to have that courageous mentality of I'm going to go in and I may also have to put myself in harm's way in order to save someone else. How did you get into the police for what, what spurred that desire in you? Did you always have that courageous attitude? I did. And I think that it was instilled in me by my dad. He was a cop. And I can remember as early as, man, eight years old, 10 years old, we would be just driving around in our family station wagon. And I lost track of the amount of times my dad said, don't move, stay in the car. And I was like, why, where are you going? And he would throw the car in park and he would go help someone on the side of the road that was in a car accident. And, you know, I saw him pull people out of the car there was one time where this guy was hitting the toll booth. He was like, you know, weaving through traffic and he hits the toll booth and he keeps going. And my dad's like, stay here. And, you know, he runs and grabs the guy and fights with him to get his keys out of the ignition. And and I was like, oh my God, what's happening? But that is what I started to come to understand that first responders do. Everybody else kept driving by and Mm -hmm. my dad would stop. And so in my mind, I believe that that was formulated in my molecules at that time. I was like, okay, first responders, they go towards things that other people drive away from. And so since I was a kid, that's been my mentality is just run towards it. And I think I learned that from watching him. Is that what helped you grow your career through the ranks? Were you always the top woman on the force? Can you share some of that journey with us? 
So that's interesting because I never in a million years thought I would promote in any kind of rank in this department. And the reason is, is, you know, I started here in 1991. So I graduated from West Aurora High School in 1991 in June. And I started in this police department in July of 1991. So I was 17 years old. I started as an intern, a police cadet. And when I walked in this building, there were no females that had attained the rank of sergeant, no females in a supervisory position. So you don't know what you don't know. And it never occurred to me that I would ever promote through the ranks. If you would have told me back then you'll become chief, I would have literally laughed you out of the room. Ultimately, what happened was kind of what you said is a couple of females became sergeants. Um, so then I thought, okay, well, obviously I saw that emulated and, you know, and I had those role models. So I thought, okay, I'll test to become sergeant. But that also had a lot to do with uh, mentors, you know, who see things in you, you don't see in yourself. And I had a lot of great male mentors that said, hey, you need to test for the sergeant's position. And I was like, you know what? Okay, maybe I'll do that. But there had never been a female lieutenant in the history of our police department. And so when I was a sergeant, you know, that little voice inside your head that says, oh, no, 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 not, not, not me. And, you know, I can't do that. Well, somewhere in the middle of that, my inner bossy pants came out. And I remember a shift in my mindset ever so slightly. Instead of why me, I started saying, wait a minute, why not me? And that that's all it took. And that's so interesting because of the power of that little voice that we carry inside our head that can truly be our detriment and, and keep us from moving forward. And so I had that mentality of why not me? And I'm just going to do it. And so there were, you know, some, I, I call them in our lives, we have mentors and we have tormentors. So I had some tormentors along the way and I had to overcome that. But it was the mindset shift that made me say, wait a minute. And then after I became a lieutenant, you know, I thought I'm going for commander. I'm, you know, I'm going to do it. And same thing with chief. I just thought that mentality is just to keep going. And that why not me, right? That self-talk of uh, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I can't do it, but actually mm-hmm. I can and I will. What got you to say those three words? Why not me? Was there anything else that was happening that gave you the confidence or the ability to confront that? Nah. You know what's interesting? And I, it's not disparaging towards my male counterparts, but what I started to notice is that all of us, there are almost 40 sergeants, right? And the lieutenant's test is coming. And so I start taking a poll, like, are you taking the lieutenant's test? Are you taking And all of the guys are like, yeah, you know, and I thought they're all saying yes. And so, and I'm like, so I don't know if it was a female thing where I just felt like I had to check all the boxes. I had to do X, Y, and Z first. I had to get all my schooling. I had to, you know, get all my certifications. I had to do this where they were all like, heck yeah, I'm taking it. And I thought, oh my God, like it's a chick thing. It's like, I think it's something that we do for ourselves to ourselves. And so I think that's what did it for me. I was like, man, that guy can't even speak in complete sentences and he's going to try to test. So, so in that moment, I thought, wait a minute, if he can do it, why can't I? And that's what I think happened is that moment where I just stopped talking down to myself and said, yeah, you can do it. And I haven't looked back and I've, I've actually tried to stifle that little voice. When it ever <laughs> comes back, I'm like, you should, nope. No. <laughs> so what is that like? Okay. Leading men and not just men, but we're talking brave, heroic, right? Strong, the strong arm men. And here's this blonde, petite female coming in before them. How was that? Was there ever pushback? Share with me some of that insight that you've gained on that leadership journey. 
So my whole career has been about that, about being stereotyped. Even as a young cop in my 20s and, you know, I'm five foot four, 125 pounds, walking around with this big old tool belt, you know, and trying to command a scene. And what struck me as so interesting is it was both men and women that would say to me, oh, you're too little to be a cop. And I was like, what? What are you what are you talking about? So then I would come back with some snarky retort of, you know, oh, I can knock you down in 11 different ways or try to be funny about it. But in all seriousness, it was a lot of roadblocks for me because people just made the assumption. So when I first came on the department, I had to contend with that. But what happens is, is competency matters. And so I quickly learned, and I think that kind of came from that mentality where I got from my dad is like always driving forward. You know, I'm always jumping in the middle of everything. And mm-hmm. so I think I, I built the trust of my comrades. And it's kind of interesting because men automatically get that credibility when they walk in. It's like, okay, yeah, you're, you know, you're cool until they aren't, until they do something, you know, to disprove that where we female police officers have to, we have to prove it. And I can remember as early back as my field training training officer. I'm literally, you know, my third month in the field training program. And my sergeant looks at my field training officer, doesn't address me, I'm sitting right next to him. And he looks at him and he says, she's doing really good in the program. But have we gotten her in a fight yet? And I'm like, hello, I'm I'm right here. You can can talk (laughs) to me. And God bless him, my field training officer who happened to be a male said, actually, Sarge, uh, she does just the opposite of fighting. She talks people into handcuffs, which is exactly what we want. And I was like, thank you. So, so that's been sort of my plight as I've gone through. And then of course, you know, as I became chief, I get it all the time. You know, do those men follow you? Do they listen to you? But here's the thing about that. Well, number one, I've come up in this police department. So I hope I've earned the respect of these officers. I I mean, that's what I strive to do every single day. And I think that's what comes down to that competency, you know, and it's, you know, do they trust me? Do they know that I have their best interest in mind? But the men, when you describe these men as big, tough guys, you know what they are, but they don't let that fool you because they also are beautiful hearts (laughs) that live inside those bodies. And And some of the biggest, burliest tattooed dudes that work here are among the most compassionate and kind and empathic. And so I think that we don't give them enough credit. But yeah, interestingly enough, it's been the outside that is truly questioned. And I thought I was done with that, right? And then I put in for Chicago to be the superintendent of Chicago. And I made it to the final three. And as I was leaving my interview with the Chicago police board, there was a woman and I was walking out and she said, I don't know how, you know, these men in Chicago are going to follow you. And I thought, here we are again. And this is another woman saying this. So I don't think I'm ever going to shake that. So my philosophy is that I just have to keep doing the very best I possibly can. And I have to own it period. Mm-hmm. And there was two things from another interview that I want to bring up. One was when you talked about talking people into handcuffs versus fighting your way through it. So I'm going to ask you if you could share that story. It was one of your earlier ones I'm not okay. sure where you were able to talk a guy, you were chasing <laughs> him. And then it's, it's my most famous story because it truly changed the way I saw policing. And that's kind of what I mean about in the early 90s, I'm a cop and I I became a sworn officer in 94. So this was, I think I had less than two years on the job and everything I learned about policing, I had emulated from those around me. And at that time, there was a lot of the, you know, the mirrored sunglasses and attitude 
and talking down to people and not with people. And so I took a cue from that's what you do in an environment. You try to fit in, you know, I mean, you try to emulate those around you. And so I thought in order to be a cop, I just had to boss people around and it changed my entire paradigm shifted. And it's not even any life or death situations. I tell the story now, but it was a traffic stop. And I pulled this guy over and I was by myself and I uh, went up to his car and I, I got his identity and I went back to my squad car and I ran his name on my mobile data computer. And he came back uh, armed and dangerous uh, with a couple warrants. And so, you know, I knew he was unfortunately going to jail. But no sooner did I look up and see that he had exited the car and just started running. So I thought, oh boy, here we go. So the foot chase was on. So it was off of Hill Avenue. That's where the stop was. And he started going through the backyards. I didn't typically work the east side. So I was I was a west sider. You west siders. West side. <laughs> uh, so I didn't exactly know where I was, but I start chasing this guy, right? And you know, back in the day, I had some wheels on me. I was pretty fast. So I had this plan that I was going to close the gap and then just jump on him, tackle him and place him into custody. So that was my plan. And so as I started to close the gap, you know, I made my move, right? And so I, I like jumped up and I grabbed onto him and he didn't fall. And uh, I did not have a plan B. Were you hanging on to him at that point? Yes. So a normal human would have let go, but not this guy. No, instead. So it's so imagine just like this baby cop. I like, I'm like grabbing onto his barrel chest, like, and he's running still. He doesn't stop. He's running with a little baby cop backpack on him. And, and, and I'm like, what am I going to do? So in that moment, I thought I'm dead. He's going to kill me because I had no idea where I was. I couldn't ask for help because both hands were hanging on to him. And of course, you know, I didn't think of just letting go. And that's the, the tenacity inside. And so while I'm, he's running with me, I said, dude, you, you just, you have to stop because I said, you and I both know that you can kill me. And I said, but it will give you no street cred if you beat up a baby cop. And my reputation will go, you know, just, you know, circle the drain amongst my peers. I said something, you know, I'm sure it was less articulate, but it was something to that effect. And the dude just stopped, you know, right after I said that. I said, let me just put you into custody because you've got these warrants and it's inevitable that we have to take care of these warrants. I won't charge you for fleeing, but just stop. And the dude stopped, you know, and I like slid down his back, you know, and, and I went to go grab my radio and call it in that I had him in custody and my radio was gone. It had bounced out of my holster. And so I handcuffed the guy and he's like, yeah, you dropped your radio back there. So I'm like following him while he showed <laughs> where my, where I dropped my radio. So I pick up my radio and you know, I'm like subject in custody. And so I'm walking with him back to my squad. By, by now, like you can hear the sirens. Everybody is, you know, coming to help me. And I said to him, I said, why did you stop? Why? Like, you didn't have to stop. You could have beat me up and, you know, and kept going. And he said, honestly, because nobody's ever just asked me before. And I was like, what? What? Nobody's ever just talked to me before. And in that moment, I thought, what a concept, you know, how about we talk to people, even people who break the law still deserve human dignity and respect. And so from that moment on, I stopped trying to emulate what I thought the guy cops or the other cops, the way I should act. And I started being myself. I started to bring my humor, my compassion, all of the skills, the things that I'm good at. 
And I started to just apply those and I became a better cop. I became a more successful police officer because what happens is people, you build relationships. And so I would get on a call and someone would say, you know, I'm not going to talk to that cop, but I'll talk to her because she was cool to me last time. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's it. You just have to talk to this, people. It was a key. Yeah. Wow. Treating people with human dignity and respect. Turns out there's something to that. And I learned from that point on that how you begin an encounter with someone often sets the tone for the encounter. And when you walk up to someone and you say, hey, you get over here, I want to talk to you versus, sir, can I speak with you for just a moment? Two very different ways of saying the same thing, but one has respect in everyone. I don't care who you are and what your lot in life is. You just want to be respected. And once we figure that out, policing will change. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the other part that you had mentioned was earlier in your career, when you got promoted, your headline was first female. And you mentioned in the interview, you're like, man, at first it was a little disappointing because I felt like something was taken from me or maybe a little bit of that respect that the men got, maybe you didn't get. Can you describe some of what your evolution of that thought process has been since? I'd spent my whole life trying to fit in. And I think it kind of goes back to, you know, small stature, just trying to be one of the guys. I didn't want to be set apart as the first female. And so... I had spent my whole career trying to shine the light away from being a female and just want to be one of the guys. Hiding? What do you think? Hiding? Yeah. I mean, it's maybe not so much, but we're, you know, we're a paramilitary organization. We wear the same uniform. So it's like, I just wanted to be one of the guys. I just wanted to fit in. And even though I knew that, you know, being different is what probably helped me become a better police officer. So when I became the first female lieutenant, the headline was just that, you know, first female lieutenant. And I was embarrassed by it because I was getting promoted with some really great guys and I felt like they were sort of being shoved to the side. So I was so uncomfortable with the light being shined on the first. Like I just wanted to be, why can't I just be a police lieutenant? Why can't I just, why does it have to be the first female? And so I had some opposition to that. And then it all changed when I started to get phone calls from young female police officers who were just entering the profession or who were even considering going into the profession that said, we saw, you know, that you're the first female and I want to become a police officer or I'm already a police officer and I never even thought about moving up. And it's so ironic and almost remedial because if you remember, I didn't think I could move up in my organization because there were no female sergeants when I started, uh, you know, it it seems a little ridiculous not to have that same mentality of like, I'm going to be a female lieutenant so I can show others the way. And so I had to get to a point where I was comfortable being called the first and I had to own that. I have since now embraced it because I know that it helps females out there to see possibility. When they see a female chief sitting in this chair, there are 12% of females in this entire profession, in the law enforcement profession. There are less than 1% sitting in an executive level. So if I can be a role model, I'm open to it. And so I take that with honor and responsibility. How do you keep command of yourself and your position as an executive Mm -hmm. Just that command presence. 
So command presence is something that really we learn in the academy. But for me, coming in again as a small statured female, I will interchange command presence. So it's not just uh, to be utilized for policing, but it's confidence. So it doesn't matter whether you're a police officer, although that is part of being a police officer. When there is a chaotic scene, that idea of command presence means that you walk in and you take control of the scene. When people are fighting or when there's some sort of disturbance, you walk in and you take command and control so no one gets hurt. Our primary focus is the preservation of life and then property in that order. And so you walk in and if someone's getting harmed, it is your job to command that scene and to make sure that no one else gets hurt. And so I learned it early on to walk on the scene like I own the place, you know, even though 125 pounds soaking wet as a young officer, you know, I walked up like a bossy pants, you know? And so I've channeled that inner bossy pants my whole career. But I will absolutely say that it's not relegated to policing. And especially, you know, as a female, command presence is simply confidence. Is when you walk into a room, do people look to you? Do they trust you to handle a situation? It's It has everything to do with leadership and how you feel about yourself. And I think that anyone, male or female, can benefit from confidence or slash command presence. But that's all that is, is believing in your capabilities and believing in your skills. And I will tell you, there are some times when I am not confident, but I also subscribe to the notion, uh, act as if. And there are some times where I don't know, like COVID to, you know, I don't know what the hell I was doing in the (laughs) middle of that pandemic to try to lead, but you know what? Act as if. And pretty soon when you start to act as if, you actually live your way into that confidence. That confidence is a natural consequence. So it's what I would tell any human being is that if you're not sure, act as if, and pretty soon you will become sure of yourself. And that's how confidence is built is by believing that it can be built. And the question that we'll leave to close is who are the three most pivotal people in your life and what did they teach you? Oh my gosh. Oh, that is so hard to nail down because my life has been a tapestry of all of the humans that have contributed. But, you know, if I had to, I would say most certainly my dad, I don't think I would be a police officer, but for him. And my dad taught me a lot of great lessons. And I kind of look at my dad as sort of like the angel and demon. Um, You know, he had an alcohol problem, you know, substance abuse. And so I look at him. He was my hero growing up. So I look at what he's instilled in me as far as becoming a first responder, but I also have learned from him what not to do, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, but he was a pivotal person in my life. And then since then, currently my partner, I wouldn't, wouldn't be where I, I am if it wasn't for my partner in life and my kids, because they are the people that I want to make proud. And so I know that if I'm doing right by them, then I'm doing okay. Awesome. And is there anything else that's on your radar after this? Are you still going up for the Chicago spot later? Are you, is, this oh. a, is this practice? Because to your point, no one's done it yet. And you're really good at being first. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they're in good hands uh, in Chicago right now with Superintendent Brown. He's awesome. Um, but no, I'm, you know, I'm happy where I'm at. The honest truth is I don't know what's next. I mean, that was an opportunity that was thrown at me and I kind of took it and thought, you know, I did that same thing. I'm like, wait, are you, 
me? Wait, are you talking to me? You, you want me to apply for it? And then, and then, you know, wait a minute, why not me? So, you know what, I'm open to whatever opportunities are coming my way down the line. But right now, you know, I'm focused on healing this city and this police department and building some more bridges and listening and good is the enemy of great. So I'm looking to try to be better. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chief Zeman. Thank you. Appreciate your time. I hope this was fun for you. Yes, <laughs> in some way. Love it. Great questions. Thank you Different. so much. Appreciate it. That'll wrap up our right. interview. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.